All right, welcome back, guys, to Neurology Exam Prep Podcast from Yale. Uh, we have one of my favorite neurocritical attendings at Yale, uh, Dr. Jennifer Kim, um, who will be joining us on this episode of Neurocritical Care Pearls. How are you doing, Dr. Kim? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. How are you, Safa? Good, good. Um, thanks for joining. Um, so we'll use this podcast. Obviously, neurocritical care has a variety of topics, which is not possible to encapsulate all of them in one podcast that you will be able to pay attention to. Um, but what we'll do is we'll go over some of the common neurocritical care presentations, especially in a patient um, with neurotrauma, something that's common for us to see in the ED, especially with new residents starting, new, new PGY2 starting, it, uh, as well as um, what's relevant for board examination. It would be nice to go over it in that um, framework. So we can we can start with level of consciousness, um, Dr. Kim. I think that's something that all of us need to understand a bit better. Sure, absolutely. So I think that um, levels of consciousness are obviously something that are a very important um, part of the neurologic exam, particularly in patients who um, are critically ill and presenting with acute brain injury. Um, so there are both scales that we can use, like the Glasgow Coma Scale, and then there are also sort of levels of consciousness that um, people use as descriptors, and so understanding both of those things is extremely important um, in terms of assessing people's mental status or levels of consciousness. Um, to start off with the Glasgow Coma Scale, it's made up of three different components, right? Your verbal output, your eye opening, and your motor exam. And so um, the lowest score that you can have is three, the highest score that you can have is 15, and these scales you can look up, but basically have varying levels of motor responses, eye opening to different levels of stimulation or spontaneously, and then your ability to follow commands and verbal output. And um, in terms of the level of consciousness, um, so there are different descriptors, as I had mentioned, um, and terms that you will commonly see when people describe uh, patients who have altered levels of consciousness. Um, so people who are um, stuporous or sometimes obtended, um, these patients often um, have reduced consciousness, really require a lot of strong um, you know, and often painful stimulation in order to el elicit any sort of response from those patients. Uh, whereas someone who's in coma really doesn't have any responsiveness even um, to vigorous stimulation. Obviously, the less severe forms are you know, sort of alterations in uh, people's uh, orientation and things like that, sleepiness, et cetera. But super um, uh, being obtended in coma are sort of um, terms that you should be familiar with within the neurocritical care population. Um, you, we also have um, other types of levels of consciousness, uh, which are very well described in terms of the disorders of consciousness. So things like uh, minimally conscious state and vegetative state are all sort of terms of different disorders of consciousness that have different criteria in terms of um, their uh, people's arousal or awareness of their environment and how purposeful their movements are. And then finally, there is the locked-in state, which um, is something that often happens with brainstem lesions, particularly in the pons, um, in which patients are uh, unable to move their body um, and uh, or, or really communicate, but their uh, supertentorial 
sort of structures are all intact. And so they are able to, or, or most of the patients with locked in, uh, in this locked in state um, do have the ability to have some sort of upward gaze and, and potentially can blink. And so there is a way for that, them to uh, communicate to the outside world because they, they do in fact have awareness. It's just that they're unable to really sort of outwardly express that communication except through eye movements. Consciousness is intact. However, um, because of the lesion location, which is often um, in the pons or as a part of the brainstem, um, it um, the the patient is really unable to outwardly communicate. Um, so they're unable to they're quadrupedic and so cannot move their body. They can't move their uh, face muscles often. And so really the only kinds of movements or ability to communicate with the outside world is through uh, usually vertical eye movements or blinking. And so um, so that is a different kind of state in which your consciousness is not, uh, a patient's consciousness is not defected. However, um, their body is unable to um, communicate except for those through those limited methods. Excellent. This is a very good orientation, like I said, especially for uh, residents who are just starting uh, neurology residency at this time of the year. Uh, now that we introduced level of awareness, uh, we can kind of dive into common critical care presentation neurotrauma like bleeds, for example, obviously extensive conversation, but we'll talk about the basics that could help facilitate the rest of our conversation. Great. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, especially for our residents who are just starting, you know, I think just like we all learn in medical school, it's really important to think about the different types of bleeding that you can have within the skull space as a different component compartments because they will give you both different syndromes and different problems and um, and often have uh, differing treatments and especially with regards to the acuity of treatment. Um, trying to go from the outside in, one of the first bleeds to describe is epidural hematomas. So usually these bleeds are caused by are arterial in nature, usually from the mid, uh, branch of the middle meningeal artery. Basically, uh, it, it often happens with a, some sort of direct head blow. So and, uh, and is described often as, you know, people lose consciousness, um, regain consciousness, and then lose consciousness again. So that's sort of the classic medical school teaching about these types of hematomas. Often, unless they are extremely small, these types of hemorrhages require surgical intervention pretty quickly um, because they, because it is an arterial bleed, they tend to rapidly progress in terms of their size, and that and that increase in size can cause a compression of different brain structures depending on where it is and can obviously be life-threatening. So often, these types of bleeds are managed um, surgically in the acute setting. The next compartment bleed that is common for us to run into is that of subdural hemorrhages. So this is um, thought more to be of a venous type bleeding, which is uh, mostly from bridging veins, oh, sorry, shearing of the bridging veins um, that occurs. And so uh, people can have these types of bleeds either acutely or in the chronic stage or somewhere in between. And so you will see in the emergency department that people come in with subdural hemorrhages with different varying, um, with different sort of presentations in terms of acuity. So you can have them from a car accident in which often those tend to be quite acute looking on, on a CT scan and they can progress very quickly. And if patients do have any significant clinical syndromes and have a large size of their subdural that looks like 
they are having going to have trouble with mass effect, then they are going to require surgical intervention very quickly, just like in uh, just like with epidural hematomas. There are other patients who may come in generally who are much older, who may have some history of a remote um, head trauma or fall, maybe even not with a head strike that's that's recalled, um, but those patients will have sort of slow ble slower bleeding over time. And so their brain uh, potentially even over the course of weeks before they hit a tipping point and actually become symptomatic and present to the emergency department. Um, and so depending on how symptomatic those patients are, and again, how large the subdural hemorrhage is, um, uh, they may or may not get surgical intervention. If it is something that's large enough to require surgical evacuation, uh, the types of intervention for the chronic subdurals tends to be a little bit less aggressive than the um, more acute subdurals. So more specifically, just so that you guys know when you're assessing people in the emergency department, classically, radiographic criteria for sending someone to the um, operating room or at least talking to your neurosurgical colleagues is if you're, um, if the largest diameter of the subdural hemorrhage is one centimeter or greater, or if the midline shift caused by the subdural hemorrhage is 0.5 centimeters or larger. Again, the clinical um, exam is also an important indicator of how symptomatic someone is from their subdural hemorrhage. Um, so those are the standard radiographic criteria, but obviously um, it, it depends on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, if it is an acute subdural hemorrhage, as in let's say a, a motor vehicle accident where um, most of the blood is acute based on the um, based on the hyperdensity that you see on head CT, then those patients will get larger uh, craniotomies, um, basically where, um, where they have to take up off a large portion of skull bone in order to um, evacuate the clotted blood since that clotted blood is quite thick. Um, that is in contrast to patients who have chronic subdurals who are um, who need to be evacuated because the blood has had time to liquefy over time. And so they often require a less invasive surgical procedure where just a few burr holes are um, are drilled into the patient's skull and the um, and that chronic subdural can be uh, flushed um, flushed through these uh, these small burr holes and so they it tends to be a less morbid procedure especially in our older population patients Excellent. That is a great neurosurgical review. How about subarachnoid hemorrhage? Sure, absolutely. So the next um, compartment is the subarachnoid hemorrhage um, or the subarachnoid space. And so you can get hemorrhage in this space as well. The most common reason for this uh, is um, from an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. That is a whole topic in and of itself. So I know that we will mostly just focus on the components of it. But uh, just so that you know, again, they tend to be more um, more arterial in nature in terms of the the bleeding and can can be quite severe if they are from aneurysm. You can get um, traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. So um, and the differences between aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage and traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage are that aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage most often is at the skull base near the circle of Willis, since that's where most of the aneurysms arise. Whereas traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage tends to be much more distal, and so you'll see sort of um, hyper densities on the CT scan, again, following the sulci distally, as opposed to at the base of the skull, like aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. That's, the, I'm so glad uh, you mentioned that. Uh, I always got them confused sometimes. Why are subarachs scary? Um, mm -hmm. Could you shed some light on that? 
Sure. Um, so again, often, oftentimes a traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage is um, tend to be smaller and are seen most often as as a sort of as part of a compilation of hemorrhages in multiple compartments. However, subarachnoid hemorrhages that are due to aneurysms have a lot of complications associated with them. Um, so the um, aneurysm can uh, can actually rebleed, and that can that is associated with a high rate of more, of mortality. If that were to happen, um, patients can have um, blood um, in the that goes into the ventricles and causes hydrocephalus, and so that can obviously cause a complications after a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And then finally, the uh, a unique complication to aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage is something called delayed cerebral ischemia. So um, delayed cerebral ischemia is basically a delayed stroke that happens after the um, after um, an aneurysmal bleed. Um, in a certain pop percentage of patients, somewhere between 30 to 50%, and it can happen up to two to three weeks after a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's why these patients are often kept in our ICUs and we watch them very closely for a long period of time. Um, the um, sort of the pathophysiology of why the delayed cerebral ischemia happens is a little bit complex, but the, the traditional thought was that it was mostly related to something called vasospasm, which is sort of a irritated reaction of the art arteries of, at the base of the brain in which they clamp down or spasm um, in reaction to uh, inflammatory mediators and, um, and perhaps indirect reaction to the blood itself um, that has spilled into the subarachnoid space. And so that spasm, uh, in addition to other mechanisms, is thought to um, contribute to the development of delayed cerebral ischemia. And so um, in our institution, we, we do um, different types of monitoring tests to try to help um, identify the patients that are at risk for this complication as early as possible. So uh, classically, the transcranial Doppler ultrasound or a TCD ultrasound, um, as you might hear it referred to, um, is something where you basically take an ultrasound probe and look through the shallow parts of the skull window to actually measure the blood flow velocities of um, that's that are going through the different arteries um, off of the circle of Willis, um, and you're basically looking for changes in those velocities. So basically, the the smaller the, the vascular pipe, right, the higher the velocity has to rise in order to get the same amount of blood flow to the tissue that it's trying to feed. Um, and so um, and so basically, if you start to see that increase in velocity over time, it makes you worried about uh, about this vasospasm process happening and an increased risk of delayed cerebral ischemia. So just related to that, uh, there's a second way in which you can also have an increased velocity on your TCD that is not related to vasospasm. And that is when the whole system your sort of whole body system is actually increased in terms of the amount of output, cardiac output that it has. So you can imagine if someone is um, over volume resuscitated or if their cardiac output is higher than in, in the whole system, the blood flow velocities will increase both in your ICA as well as um, more distal vessels like the MCA. And so to help differentiate that state from one in which there is actually spasm of the a distal vessel like the MCA, we can use ratios of the velocities of these vessels. So things like the Linden guard ratio is something that we use to measure or assess um, whether um, there is 
spasm in that distal vessel as opposed to sort of increased hyperemia um, within the entire system. That's great, um, Dr. Kim. Thank you so much. And I think it's important for us to realize a distinction upon presentation uh, between just a traumatic subarach versus an aneurysmal, because often you could have a, an aneurysmal rupture that lead to a trauma secondary to that from a fall, for example. So I think being able to look at a scan and identify that, and based on that triage, what, what are the next steps to do um, are very important. So thanks for reviewing that. Uh, so another type of bleed um, that we have to uh, think about within trauma is um, bleeds within the brain parenchyma themselves. Okay, so we talk about intraparenchymal hemorrhages, um, in all different types of disease states, um, but often in the trauma patient, we see uh, patients with contusions or brain bruises, basically. And so that's a mix of both um, hemorrhage as well as uh, edema. And so that's a, a unique type of uh, intraparenchymal hemorrhage that you guys uh, should know about that's a little bit separate from um, primary or secondary intraparenchymal hemorrhages, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and then the final um, compartment of bleeding that I want to make sure that I mention is in the ventricular space. So intraventricular hemorrhage is another thing to, uh, is another place where you can have bleeding. It can be um, often from uh, from trauma can also be from a, a primary uh, intraventricular hemorrhage, meaning a small vessel uh, in or near the um, ventric ventricles actually rupture, or it can be secondary to things like subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so it's really important to assess the amount of blood that's in the interventricular space to be able to understand how much um, how much that blood puts a patient at risk. And so the major risk of having blood in the ventricles is that it can clot off the normal CSF flow through the ventricular system and therefore cause obstructive hydrocephalus. And so in order for us to assess that, you really want to understand sort of how much blood and where the blood is in order to understand the the danger of that uh, to that particular patient. And so because the um, smallest uh, sort of the narrowest parts of the ventricular uh, system are between the third and fourth ventricle at the cerebral aqueduct. If you see blood in the third and the fourth ventricle, uh, those patients, uh, then, then you know by um, deduction that those patients have um, blood in the cerebral aqueduct. And so you worry very much about those patients in particular having trouble with, um, with um, the development of hydrocephalus due to their interventricular hemorrhage. Uh, in terms of interventions, if you do feel, if they already show signs of hydrocephalus or there is a clinical decompensation during their hospitalization, which makes you worried for hydrocephalus, often these patients get um, uh, get drains put into the ventricles to try to help uh, re relieve that pressure um, and also to help um, with a little bit of that blood clearing. Thank you so much for that. While we're on that topic, I think uh, talking about elevated ICP secondary to such bleeds will be important and a little bit about their management that could be relevant to examination. Would you mind sharing some thoughts about how the brain is a tight compartment and how we should perceive ICP. Yeah. So um, perfect. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, a very, very important concept that um, we as neurologists in general, as well as neurocritical care doctors especially, should be acutely aware of us of knowing when someone is having trouble with their intracranial pressure or their ICP. Um, so, and, and this is a common thing that we see within the neurocritical care uh, pop, uh, population. And so we know that, you know, normal ICP is somewhere between five to 15 
um, centimeters of water for most patients. Um, and so when it rises above that, we get really worried. And why do we worry about it? It's because the skull um, provides a fixed, um, a, a fixed space um, for all of its contents. And so the brain, um, very simply, is, you know, you can think of as being of consist uh, inside the skull is consisting of three main components, the brain itself, um, the C CSF, and the blood vasculature. Okay, and so there is only a fixed amount of space uh, in the skull space, it's called the Monroe Kelly Doctrine. And you basically, um, if if any of those three components actually increases in the amount of volume it takes up in the skull space, then it can cause elevated intracranial pressure. You know, so we can talk about how to deal with increased ICP based on those three different components. So the first is if there is a problem with the brain itself causing a uh, taking up more volume. So that happens often, uh, most often when there is edema in the brain. Now edema in the brain can happen because of uh, all different types of um, acute brain injuries, strokes, bleeds, traumas, um, things like that. And so, um, and so when the brain takes up more space, then um, it causes um, it causes elevated ICP, and so you want to target your therapies to reducing the amount of mass effect that is being that is being produced by the acute brain injury um, related to the parenchyma itself. So some ways that we often that we most often use to address this are um, to make sure that the head of the bed is raised. Um, so at least 30 degrees, if someone looks acutely like they are um, in life-threatening um, high ICP levels, then you can actually sit them bolt upright at 90 degrees. Um, and another acute thing that you can do uh, in these patients is to hyperventilate them. What happens there is, again, because it's a fixed box space, you cause um, vasoconstriction so that you allow the blood vessel volume that's, um, that's taking up the the skull space to um, to um, to to be less to allow a little bit more of that brain space without um, increasing the ICP, but that's very short lived, obviously, because um, prolonged vasoconstriction causes ischemia to the brain. So you want to have that as being what we call a bridge therapy to some other type of therapy. Most commonly, what you guys will see and should have a very good understanding of is hyperosmolar therapy. Um, and there's two different types of hyperosmolar therapy that we administer at Yale. So one is hypertonic saline or 23% normal. Um, 23% saline. The other is something called mannitol. Okay. And so um, again, make sure during your ICU rotations that you have a very good understanding or it's explained to you exactly how these therapies work and when to use them. Uh, in short, they, um, they both help to draw water out of the brain by different mechanisms, um, but basically they are hypertonic solutions or hyperosmolar solutions, and so they um, re um, reduce the water that's in the brain parenchyma itself and draw it back out into the, um, into the blood vessel space. Um, and so that helps to reduce the amount of edema that, um, that exists in the brain parenchyma itself, therefore, thereby reducing the ICP through those mechanisms. And so that's the most common medical therapy that you will see to reduce um, intracranial pressure um, that is elevated. Some other medical therapies that you can use to reduce ICP um, are 
um, are things like sedating patients. And so we have all different types of anesthetics that we can use to help sedate patients. This reduces the metabolic demand um, on um, of the brain, and that can help reduce uh, intracranial pressure. And so, um, so uh, all different types of anesthetics can be used depending on particular patient situation and their hemodynamic status. Um, but Propofol um, is uh, often used as an initial uh, as initial sedative therapy. Um, uh, the most extreme kind of sedation that people can use to to put people in deep coma are barbiturates. Um, so those are kind of one of those last line therapies that people um, turn to uh, when people have very high um, and refractorily elevated ICPs. Another uh, medical method that we can use to reduce ICP is through paralytics. Um, so again, sort of reducing metabolic demand overall and helping to control ventilation a little bit. Um, par paralytics are extremely helpful in reducing patients' ICPs. And so that is another strategy that we use um, to help reduce ICP in these patients. Um, so those are the, the main things. We also can do things like um, fever control because we know, again, that high metabolic demand is not good for um, and shivering and things like that um, are really bad for um, intracranial, uh, high intracranial pressure. Um, and so we definitely want to um, do things like avoiding fever. Now, in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of surgical management for um, elevated ICP, um, there are two main things that we do. One is to drain off the CSF. Um, and so again, because the skull space has three compartments, right? If, you, if you've tried to reduce the brain parenchyma issues as best as possible, and you've done things like hyperventilation to reduce um, the amount of blood space that exists, then you know really the next thing you turn to is a CSF drainage. And again, the time frame at which you decide to do CSF drainage um, depends on the particular clinical situation. If you think that um, hydrocephalus is the main reason why someone has high ICP, then you're going to turn to this as a first-line therapy. If you really think that it's, um, you know, a, a diffuse, you know, brain edema that's causing elevated ICPs, then then actually doing CSF drainage is, uh, can uh, may not be as helpful, and so you may not turn to it as one of your first-line therapies. Um, and the main the main way in which we um, uh, we um, drain CSF is through um, EVDs or extra external ventricular catheters. Um, so these are catheters that are um, put in at the bedside by our neuro uh, by our neurosurgical colleagues um, from the skull, uh, where a small uh, hole is drilled into the skull and a, a tube or catheter is placed um, through the brain parenchyma into the intraventricular space and um, and then connected to um, a drain bag um, that allows for CSF drainage um, at different rates depending on how you set that. Um, and so that's a main a major way in which ICP can be controlled surgically. The other surgical management of elevated ICP, which is often a last resort, is um, is a decompression, surgical decompression. So basically, taking off a, a large piece of skull to in order to allow um, sweat brain um, swelling to come outward rather than downward and cause a herniation syndrome. And so again, depending on the type of pathology that you're dealing with, you're going to turn to that kind of surgical intervention earlier, like in uh, ischemic stroke and some big um, intraparenchymal hemorrhages, you may use that a little bit earlier. Whereas in something like brain trauma, that's more diffuse, then you may turn to that as a later strategy, given that its benefit in those populations are a little bit less clear. This is a great review. Uh, thank you so much. While we're on the topic of elevated ICP, and like you mentioned, 
the brain parenchyma being one of the three components within the skull, um, we can talk a little bit more about edema, parenchymal edema. So what are the different types of edema? Yeah, so, um, you know, we talk about um, in neurology different types of edema. I think uh, the main two types that uh, residents should be aware of are um, cytotoxic edema and then vasogenic edema. And so um, cytotoxic edema usually, as the name sort of implies, is actually related to um, sort of um, edema due to cellular swelling because of cell death that happens. Um, Often, um, I guess uh, early in uh, an ischemic stroke, this tends to be the most common type of um, edema that occurs, um, can happen in, um, in certain types of um, traumatic brain injuries, again, early on um, as well. Whereas the second type of edema is something called vasogenic edema. It often has to do with a breakdown, um, some sort of breakdown um, or, perme- or increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier. Um, and so the most common uh, clinical situation in which we see vasogenic edema are things like um, brain tumors. Um, so you can see a lot of edema related um, in reaction to um, a tumor or some sort of foreign, other foreign body like, a, uh, like an abscess or some other type of infection. In later stages of ischemia and um, hemorrhage, you can sometimes see vasogenic edema as well, just since um, in those later stages, there may be um, breakdown of the blood-brain barrier um, in, uh, after those types of injuries as well. So those types of injuries can have a mix, but it's important to understand um, the different types of edema because their treatment can often be different. So for instance, with vasogenic edema like tumors, you, um, we often try to use steroids to help to reduce that edema, whereas such things like steroids are less effective in um, often in, in, in forms of cytotoxic edema, for instance, in the setting of um, ischemia. Exactly. Um, so to quickly recap, with vasogenic edema, you have disruption of the blood-brain barrier. You would have fluid accumulation to extracellular space, whereas in cytotoxic edema, you get disruption of the potassium ATPase pump, uh, which winds up with alteration to cellular membrane, accumulating um accumulating in the intracellular space. All we talked about in elevation of ICP can definitely present with clinical signs, herniation syndromes being one of them. And I was wondering if uh, you can guide us through some of these clinical signs. Absolutely. Yes. So um, brain herniation syndromes are an extremely important um, set of syndromes for us to recognize at the bedside and to understand a little bit their pathophysiology as to why they present the way that they do. And so um, it's very important for us to make sure that you, um, that residents have a good understanding of this. Um, So I think the most um, common one that uh, people uh, should know about and and are often taught uh, first off is something called uncle herniation. And so that's where um, basically the temporal lobe um, starts to um, have uh, get pushed midline towards the brain stem. And um, in this type of herniation, um, you uh, often, um, you know, classically what is described is that patients uh, begin to have uh, problems with their ipsilateral uh, cranial nerve three. Uh, most commonly, the first symptom is that people will start to have a pupil pupillary dilation, and that's because the parasympathetic fibers of the um, which control the the sort of size of the people are on the outside of the 
of the nerve. Um, and so that compression, um, so that outside compression uh, onto the nerve um, from the herniation is uh, causes a pupillary dilation. Um, if there continues to be pressure, then you'll have, um, you'll have uh, effects on the other functions of the cranial nerve uh, three uh, of the ocular motor uh, of the ocular motor movements, um, and so uh, that that's one of the early uh, that's one of the signs of uncle herniation. Um, you can have um, paral uh, hemiparesis on the opposite um, side of the body as well. Again, due to compression of the brainstem, um, and and those are sort of the most common. There are ways in which this uncle herniation can happen where there is actually almost a twisting of the um, of a, or a torque of on the brainstem itself and can actually cause stretching of the um, corticospinal tract on the other side. And so um, that can cause uh, a presentation of ipsilateral um, hemiparesis. Um, and so uh, those are different types of um, different types of signs of uncle herniation that you want to be um, particularly um, aware of. Obviously, um, with all of these herniation syndromes, uh, a decreased level of alertness or arousal is going to be one of your uh, most important um, things, to, uh, signs to keep a very close eye on and is something that we ask our nurses in the neuro ICU to keep a very close eye on for patients who are at risk for herniation. Um, the next type of um, herniation syndrome that I wanted to mention is something called subfalcine herniation. So subfalcine herniation is when um, you basically have uh, brain tissue that becomes edematous or shifts for whatever reason um, under the falcs, which is that midline um, sort of dural structure that exists that splits the two hemispheres. And when that subfalcine herniation occurs, then you actually get dysfunction of the medial uh, structures on the other side of the brain. And so let's say, for instance, you had ACA stroke or hemorrhage uh, in that area on the on the right side of the brain, uh, then you would have left leg paresis. However, when the subfalcine herniation um, occurs, then you will start to actually show signs of right leg um, dysfunction. And so again, this is one of those things where if you know that someone is at risk for subfalcine herniation, you actually want to look at the motor function of their ipsilateral leg to see if there is any change in that leg to um, in, in terms of showing you um, early signs of that uh, subfalcine herniation. Very good. Another type of herniation um, that we should cover is something called transtentorial herniation. And so um, so the tentorial space is where your cerebellum lives. And so basically, if you have some sort of mass or hemorrhage um, or stroke um, that uh, is taking up space or causing edema of the cerebellum, then that can cause you to be at risk for trans, uh, transcentorial herniation, and so uh, which is also called upward herniation. Um, and so this transcentorial herniation occurs because the cerebellum basically gets displaced through um, through the tentorium um, up. Uh, upwards and it's basically starts to compress the the upper part of the brainstem and can cause um, eye movement abnormalities but ultimately obvious as all of these herniation syndromes can ultimately enough brain uh, brainstem compression to be life-threatening um, and so that is something where we think very carefully about um, that cerebellar space because it's a or, um, because it's a very tight space. And so um, any bleeds that are larger than three centimeters um, 
any large strokes, especially in the pica territory, um, or a lot of intraventricular hemorrhage or big tumoral masses um, are things that we take um, very seriously when they occur in the cerebellum because there is such a small amount of space um, for their for the brain to for the cerebellum to accommodate and there is this high risk of this type of upward herniation. Um, so so that's an, another type of herniation syndrome to be aware of. Um, the next um, type of herniation syndrome to be aware of that's also in the um, cerebellar space or the tentorial space um, is called tonsillar herniation. And so instead of the cerebellum displacing upward, this is where the cerebellum um, displaces downward. And so um, tonsillar herniation, again, uh, due to an acute brain injury can be life-threatening as well because you have a compression of the um, lower brainstem and the upper cervical cord. Now, this is different than something that happens chronically over time where you might hear about tonsillar uh, tonsillar herniation in the setting of Chiari malformations, for instance, and those are often things that people are born with or um, progress slowly over time. Because those happen so slowly over time, there is some accommodation, and so that those tend to be less um, dangerous in terms of um, in terms of uh, a herniation syndrome, um, but uh, in terms of their herniation impact. Um, but obviously people are still um, do present symptomatically related to, to, to that. But um, so that's a different type of herniation syndrome that occurs uh, in the cerebellar space. I think uh, those are the main types of herniation syndromes. Just as a side note, obviously, if you have a skull defect um, of any form, right, uh, from uh, neurosurgically or from trauma, then you can have brain tissue uh, herniate through that space. Um, and so that's called transcalvarial um, herniation. So that's something obviously to be aware of, um, but you should have a clinical context in which to suspect that one and should be observable at the bedside. Um, and then um, and then finally, uh, central herniation um, is another term uh, that you might hear um, in which you have usually a more global process like diffuse cerebral edema where um, the, the, the edema is, is uh, so severe globally, like in, for instance, hypoxic ischemic injury after cardiac arrest, where um, that severe brain edema just causes sort of a diffuse um, up, um, downward uh, herniation syndrome um, and therefore compresses the brainstem and is life-threatening. This is a very good review. Uh, I really appreciate it, Dr. Kim, and thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. We'll, we'll be talking um, at length about some of these topics in later podcasts uh, pertaining to the neurocritical care topics. Um, hopefully you guys enjoyed our uh, brief overview about some presentations for neurotrauma. We'll see you at another podcast. Thank you. But this was fun. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, that was super fun. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Likewise.